You're listening to MND Matters, a podcast from the MND Association. Welcome to MND Matters, brought to you by the MND Association. Alongside members of the MND community, including people affected by the disease, health and social care professionals and supporters, we'll be bringing stories, information and expertise direct to your ears. Subscribe now to ensure that you don't miss an episode. I'm Becky and I'm from the regional care team and we've also got Steph who's from our fundraising team and in this episode we're joined by Chris Johnson who's a former assistant chief constable of the West Midlands Police. He was diagnosed with MND six months after he was promoted to this prestigious role. Following a 30-year policing career that he loved, Chris decided to carry on working after receiving his MND diagnosis. But what led him to make that decision and what support is available for people living with MND if they want to continue their jobs and in their roles too. We've started out by asking Chris why he wanted to join the police force. So I was a, a 24-year-old um, working on a, a building site and uh, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, a couple of police officers that came to deal with uh, an incident that happened on the building site and they just came and talked to me with such passion about the work that they were doing um, but but also um, it kind of was a, a pivotal moment I guess when you're that kind of age you've probably started a career that you thought was right but I wanted something that was a bit more so you know I kind of wanted that bit of excitement variety something that helps to you know make our communities better um, and you know I, I guess it was just a, a great coincidence of timing that I was, as I was thinking about what on earth am I going to do with the rest of my life, I met these two really great police officers and I thought, crikey, uh, I, I want a bit of that. What they're doing sounds great, you know, running around in fast cars and arresting people and just just all that kind of great stuff that feels a bit like the television. And uh, that night I went home and... Uh, there was no such thing as the internet, obviously. <laughs> um, but I made a, a couple of phone calls and wrote a letter. Imagine that, a letter now. Um, wrote a letter asking for an application form. And uh, I kind of managed somehow to get through that whole process uh, without any sort of knockbacks or, or anything, really. I kind of just took e- each stage as it went and... Uh, got in 20 24 years old and uh had the most fantastic policing career and uh enjoyed every day every day at work was just uh, was just great yeah so it was a, a long time ago and a a, a long journey but um, 30 years in policing is uh is genuinely a great um a great experience and uh i would recommend it to uh, to anybody if they're thinking of doing that and joining it's great what would you say the the main bits that you enjoyed have you got like well you will i'm sure you've got loads of standout moments but anything you could share with us like the real peaks of of your career there were loads really um you know the, the probably the the standout most important thing for me having spent so long working throughout the west midlands was being appointed as an assistant chief constable you know, gone through, me and my family had gone through, um, you know, a couple of years of working really hard to, to get through the selection process for that. Going away for a few months, um, away from the family on the 
the course to do that with the prospect of if I got a job it could be anywhere in the country and to get that in my home force was just was just honestly um unbelievable and uh a genuine genuine uh surprise but a delight at the same time and uh you know we we dealt with so many things you know um i, I led for the response for the but there was a bomb that was found in birmingham uh in the middle of uh, aston where um, it was the largest that exploded uh world war ii munition we'd got the um you know, the motorway closed, cross city line closed in terms of the railway. We'd got uh, parts of airspace closed. It was, you know, three days of really the city being brought to a halt. But but at least being able to kind of lead that and make sure that the the communities that were disrupted because of that were to, to the best of our ability. You know, we didn't get all of that right. To the best of our ability, um, we tried to make sure that people were impacted as little as possible. When you achieved, like you said, that career highlight around getting the assistant chief constable role and where you live as well in your community where you've where you've worked so hard. Your, can you tell us more about, so your MND diagnosis was shortly after that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it's um, having been pr- promoted, I took the family away we went away on that kind of Disney trip, you know, the the uh, trip that we'd all looked forward to for many years and talked about. And, and to celebrate my promotion and also to thank my kids for all the kind of turmoil I put them through for the last 18 months, we kind of went away, had three fabulous weeks uh, in, uh, in America, came back and a few weeks later, didn't feel hugely well. I, I'd noticed, but completely taken no notice of the fact that my left foot was getting a little bit weaker. Just kind of wrote it off as, you know, must have a bit of a, a muscle ache or pain or whatever. But uh, my left foot was definitely getting a bit weaker. And I was catching my toes as I was kind of walking, which um, I just told myself off, off about. But coming back from America, I was feeling a little bit breathless. So I went along to my GP and um, he uh, was just brilliant because he kind of listened, you know, to this this 50-year-old fellow who was telling him he was feeling a bit breathless. Um, and one of the reasons for that was, you know, I was really fortunate that in 30 years of policing and before, I never had a day off sick. So, you know, I, I kind of managed to live my life and avoid flus and any, you know, other conditions. So it was my first trip to the doctor's surgery for about 25 years. And I think because of that, he listened, which which was great. And he told me later, he never met a patient who was presenting early with MND. So... You know, he he learned something I think from 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 that experience as well. But he uh, he he sent me off for some tests just to make sure that I'd got a thrombosis having gone through the flight, and also to have a check on my heart. So a couple of weeks later, went along along to the doctors, 
doctor did some tests um, and then kind of test results come back everything's everything's okay you know there's there's no problem with your heart no problem you know you've got nothing on your lungs but we want to rerun some of the uh, another ECG on your heart just to make sure so I go along to, uh, to the hospital they run the ECG and there's no problem they then did a blood test and there were just some odd results with the blood test that led to straight away um they did the arterial blood test and uh, the levels of carbon dioxide in my blood were really high and i'd also got a build-up of by i think it's bicarbonates in, in my blood which indicated that my breathing was re was really poor didn't feel it you know i just thought it was a little bit labored so taken into hospital and um number of different tests obviously uh loads of scans all that other stuff and as you, as you and your listeners will know it's a differential diagnosis isn't it in the absence of anything else it's it's mnd so they did the nerve conductivity test and that's when i was given the news that um, i'd got motor neuro disease which was a complete and utter shock and surprise as uh, as you can imagine like most people I didn't really know what MND was. Kind of uh, Googled it and thought, oh, that's uh, that's pretty serious, isn't it? You know, um, that's life-changing stuff. So uh, went through all of the um, all of the stuff with your family that you kind of expect. With that, I think um, it did, of course, did of course uh, upset me and. Um, as you kind of think about your future, but I think what what upset me probably the most was not not the kind of prognosis because you know other uh, other than in my mind anyway, other than um, it bringing things forward. You know we're all here for a certain period of time. What what I think was the hardest thing for me to deal with was. The um, the impact on my children, you know, I've got uh, you know, what what would have been at, at the time anyway, you know, a, a nine year old and a fourteen year old, but that obviously we're a few years past that now. So uh, I've got an eleven year old and sixteen year old uh, currently, and you know, I really wanted to see my kids grow up. You know, I really wanted to see my some um, kind of finished school. I wanted to walk my daughter down the aisle on a wedding day and all that stuff that I think every dad would want to do with their daughter on their wedding day and every parent would want to do with their kids, uh, you know, throughout their lives, really. I think that was the biggest shock, actually, and the biggest, the hardest, genuinely the hardest thing to come to terms with in terms of the diagnosis, you know, what, what would happen to my family? Not everyone feels able to talk so openly about their experience of MND. What made you want to take the brave step of speaking out? I honestly don't feel very brave. Um, I just feel it's really important for us to talk. You know, I, I think um, I think it's okay for people to say, you know, I'm not okay. 
that that I need help, I need support. And part of the challenge, I, I think, and you know, I'm new to this MND thing. It's only, it's, it will be three years quite soon. But that's the problem, isn't it? That, that most people with MND are new to it and you don't get along with it. And if, you know, if, if we can't speak out either personally or collectively, then who's going to listen and who's going to help? You know, I, I, I felt really strongly on my diagnosis that, you know, I wanted to continue working. Um, you know, I wanted to continue to contribute. I loved my job and I um, I worked to the point where I couldn't walk anymore. And I was needing an IV, you know, really pretty much from the time I left work to the time I went back to work, just to, just to keep my levels, you know, right. But we've got, you know, we've got to be part of the conversation. You know, if we want, whether that's, you know, the medical profession, researchers, politicians, the broader community to, to come with us on this journey and to help, you know, help the work that the MND Association are doing, um, you know, whether that's supporting people who need, you know, really practical support, you know, and I've been a grateful recipient of, of some of that, you know, the, the convenience that you get from a uh, bio B day is uh, is incredibly uh, important, you know, because it helps you to maintain your dignity. But but you know, perhaps more than that, you know, if we can get to a point where we're able to identify this disease earlier and help people to either more successfully manage the symptoms or ideally you know get to a point where we could stop the disease in its track or or better still you know find a cure then we will only do that i really believe by helping to raise awareness and helping to raise uh you know the, the kind of necessary funds to make sure that we've got really targeted practical um practical research going in, uh, you, you know, just across the fantastic research institutes that, that are there trying really hard to do this. But they need our help, you know, and we're, we're, we're the kind of voice of this. And the more often that we can say, you know, this could be you, you know, this is, there's no, there's no, re, you know, there's no understanding as to what causes this. You know, it's, this could be any one of us and one in 300 will get this during their lifetime. I mean, a shocking statistic I heard probably for the first time only a couple of weeks ago was, you know, out of the current population, was it 200,000 people are likely to get MND across the United Kingdom? Well, that's a big number, isn't it? Yeah. And we've got to do more. You know, we've, we've got to push hard to you know unite that great research in a mission that is about how do we prevent and ultimately cure uh, this disease because i think they've got the ambition for it we kind of just need the coordination and uh, and support of both 
you know the public communities and probably just as importantly you know the kind of political leadership to, to make this happen because through covid we've shown we can make great things happen going back to sort of your decision to continue working I'm guessing there were open conversations with your employers. How soon did they start and what sort of support did they give to you to enable you to continue working? Because we can tell just how important that was to you to be able to do. And, and I completely understand from everything you've said about your policing career, why you would want to continue working and how much it meant to you. Yeah, so um, I, uh, I, I mean, I think, well, I was, I was, completely open from the start so the moment I got the diagnosis you know I uh, I went back to my force and told um, you know the, the, the chief constable and uh, the deputy I was an assistant at the time so you know across the whole team I uh, I, I was really clear right from from the beginning you know that their personal support was just incredible you know I, I couldn't have asked for anything more you know, and, and that came in two, uh, well, perhaps I'd describe it in three ways, really. You know, they, the, there was the kind of practical support, um, just in terms of any any physical change. Um, they were really keen on that kind of emotional support um, and what they could do around that. But but thirdly, and probably, probably as importantly, um, was the support into my family you know so my wife's a serving police officer in the same force as well so um you know giving giving our family the support you know and some you know some of that is uh you know kind of professional help and you know we've got great occupational um health departments in in force um who were there of the force doctor and all that sort of stuff um but then just just allowing me, I think they allowed me to do it, or maybe they uh, they just gave the illusion of allowing me to do it, um, you know, kind of being the master of my own destiny. So, you know, giving me permission to keep going and doing what I wanted and needed to do so that I could retain my professional dignity. Because I, th I don't think what any of us want is you know, a, a big dose of their their cream. You know, I just wanted, I just wanted to go to work and contribute. I just wanted to go and do the job I was doing before as best as I could. And if if there were some practical problems around that, we get around it. And and you know that's really dignifying. It really is, and is you know, for any employer, you know, to be able to you know treat your staff with that level of dignity and respect i think is critical because you know one it's important because of you know the dignity of the individual but i think i think it's great for the for the organization one of the uh you know one of the real surprises to me because a couple of weeks after my diagnosis i had that kind of decision to make about how public do you make it internally and externally so one of the uh, you know, one of one of the great things about being an assistant chief constable is, you know, it's a big organisation and there's a few of you, and hopefully, occasionally, you know, some of the people that work for you do listen to you. Um, so I was able to, uh, you know, do 
uh, an internal, if you like, comms piece back into to the organisation. Honestly, the level of um, support I got from staff, you know, right across the service in West Midlands and into other forces was just phenomenal. And like, again, like many people, I'm sure, that are listening, it's amazing the number of people that come back to you and say, oh, I heard what happened, you know, really sorry. They inevitably say that, don't they? But my aunt, my uncle, my dad, my granddad, my friend, you know, they, they, they sadly had MND. And the number of people that come back to you and you see, you know, you see really clearly how quietly MND touches everybody. And it, it is quite silent, you know, it's sorry, you know, I've described before you know, as being it silently touches lots and lots of families. Um, but it's not until you're talking about it do you realize just how broad that is. But the, the support was uh, were, was fantastic. And you know, I, I had a difficult de decision to make at the end of last year, which was just you know, simply how much longer and you know, hopefully I, I, I timed that right. You know, I was, I think, still um, still contributing, still able to perform, but you know, just got to that period of time where you know, I was uh, pretty much confined to my wheelchair and uh, and needing the needing the NIV more really. So it just made that pretty pretty impossible. But that was absolutely my decision and. Uh, Whilst it was incredibly regretful, it was the right one, I think, at the time. But you didn't do it silently, let's put it, or you, you know, you you came out of there and um, I believe that you completed 5,000 steps as you left your office. And you've obviously just said previously that, you know, you were you were pretty much in your wheelchair the, the whole time as you, you know, when you came to that decision to retire. But what was going through your mind at that moment and what are the reasons behind you doing that? It's absolutely incredible. Well, um, uh, obviously the MND Association were running Mission 5000 at the time. Now, I couldn't run 5000 kilometres. But uh, what, what, what I wanted to do was to take 5000 steps. This is kind of my equivalent of trying to take a step for every uh, everybody living with the disease and do that as a fundraiser, really. And uh, again, it was just just amazing how that took off. You know, um, people got right behind it. Um, we've got some news crews on the day from uh, BBC and from ITV came out, kind of, kind of did a bit of filming at home. And the pride that I got taking my five thousand step—not easy to say that, is it? My <laughs> step. Um, walking out the front door of Lloyd House, you know, finishing my service, you know, that was it, that was my, me having my warrant card in, but, but doing that, completing that challenge was just great. And, you know, again, it comes back to that thing about how do you use those opportunities, hopefully, to just try and garner a little bit of interest, some support, help to spread the message you know how how do you how do you build on 
you know, people are really interested. But how do you keep building on that? You know, you look at, I look in, in great awe and envy at uh, the likes of Doddy, Stephen, and uh, of course, Rob, uh, who've done such tremendous work on helping to raise awareness that, you know, they're, they're kind of bravery, their their willingness to stand up. You know, all three of them as elite sport people. When you look at the kind of devastation that undoubtedly the disease does to your body, you know, this this must have been incredibly painful for them. Like it is for everybody else, but you know, they've used their platform, I think, for good. You know, they've used that um, that kind of network of how people to get come together in terms of sport to be able to kind of corral people, to be able to kind of motivate people, raise awareness, obviously do a significant amount of fundraising, which has just been just been brilliant, obviously. If you have the ability for, to be able to at least send a message and, and allow people to to hear what you've got to say, I think you've got a responsibility to to the MND community to do it. Yeah, because you mentioned that quite a bit when you were talking about when you'd told your employers, you told the police force and your your chief about your diagnosis, and then they empowered you to design how you then tell your colleagues and the comms around it. And I wouldn't. I wanted to just call back to that and just ask if there were any things that, in particular, that you or your employer um, put in place, little things that enabled you to retain your dignity at work or empower you to be in control of how your work flows because that's the sort of thing that I think other people listening to this who are maybe going through the decision of should I leave work or can I continue because work's important to me like what are the little things that you might not be able to read about online or you know that that practical stuff that's a great question Um, because you're so right you know it, it probably isn't the big things is it you know, it, it is, you know, how, how do you sit down? And I think having a conversation with your, you know, your line manager and your team. So those that those that you're reporting to and those that report to you, if you're in that position, are, are really important. Because one of the things that I was really worried about was that people would interpret, you know, a loss of function in terms of physical function with a loss of cognitive ability. And I wanted them to all be really clear right from the start that my fingers might not work as well. I might not be able to type as quickly. But honestly, I could still think as clearly as before. Now, I know that for some people, MND can affect them with some forms of prefrontal dementia. So I appreciate what I'm saying isn't applicable to all people with with MND, but I think it is for quite the significant majority. And I've been lucky through this journey that it, it hasn't affected me in that way. But, you know, sitting with them and just explaining what the disease means. So, you know, I... I really, really simply, you know, I... I used to not to talk for, you know, talk for the country, really. You know, I, I, I was really, I think, okay at 
standing up in front of a crowd and presenting. And that's quite an important part of your job if you're commanding an incident. Now, what that, what that did mean is that I needed to stand up in front of those people or make them aware beforehand. I hadn't quite got the sentence length that I'd got before. So, you know, I, I was a bit, brevity became, uh, you wouldn't think so listening to this, would you? Uh, brevity became important because I, I couldn't project in the same way. And I, my sentence length was changing. So what I was able to do was, you know, probably resort a bit more to, you know, writing some stuff down but then talking about things in a more succinct way. So, you know, there are tactics that you can, whatever is the important part of your role, there are some tactics I think you can bring to bear that with, you know, just through that conversation with either your, your boss or the people that you're leading, you can say to them, it's going to look a bit different. But it's, you know, in terms of the product, in terms of delivery, you know, we're not budging from that. There's no compromise on that. You know, I'm still gonna, I'm still going to be the leader that I was, but in a slightly different way, and that's going to look different because of this. And I think, I think the earlier in the d disease diagnosis you have that conversation, I think the easier it is for those that you're leading and your leaders to come on that journey with you. Yeah, and I think it's amazing that you had such an, you worked in a, in an employer that is notoriously looks after their staff, don't they? Like, you know, you work for a very good employer and you had a very good open dialogue. And there might be people listening to this who could be self-employed or work for some of the lesser known uh, employers that don't, maybe don't, have never come across this before in terms of any sort of adjustment in the workplace. So it's worth just mentioning here that there's a cast that can support any and we'll include links to this in the, in the podcast description but there's a cast and you're protected under the equality act and um there's lots of advice available on our website and also other um disability charities that support people to sort of empower people to stay in their jobs and you know you're not disabled by your body you're disabled by the environment so if you can remove some of those uh barriers in the workplace like you say having a, a an executive assistant that can help and i think that's an amazing adjustment to be able to talk rather than write or type is can change everything can't it and i know from experience there's some that there's some of the things that access to work can help fund if funding is an issue you can pay to have a professional personal assistant in the workplace who you dictate to and like there's so many amazing incredible adjustments that can be made it's about having that conversation and leading it isn't it and being open about what you need it is becky and, uh, and you know you, you you are right i uh, i was very fortunate i think to have a, a great employer there are tons of amazing employers but there are some that might be less so and you are right you know these are moments to be relatively robust too because the law is behind you but but you know I, you've got you've got to be open you've got to be honest because what can flow from that is a tremendous amount of support and uh, and i you know it's probably remiss of me um you know i did have contact from access to work um i didn't you know be, because of the fortunate position i was in you know i didn't need to pick 
pick them up about uh, sorry to pick up the offers that they made but even really simple things like you know getting you a taxi into work because you couldn't drive you know there are tons of really practical you know that i had the conversation with them they were great you know really um thought loads of things i hadn't thought about about you know would this help would that help oh yeah that's that's a good idea you know um I was able to take some of their ideas actually back to the force. And the force just said, "No, we'll do that. You know, we don't need to. We don't need to um, do the access to work thing." But it's there, and you're right. You know, it's funded too. So yeah, remember that. You know, the, the law is behind you. Um, nobody needs to feel uh, bullied or, you know, cajoled into a position. This this uh, is a disability. And, you know, the, the, the legal environment is there to protect you too. I guess, really, what, what's next for you? What are, what are your next plans, Chris? Oh, well, well uh, I, I got a bit of a milestone uh, last week where uh, I managed to take my daughter to her prom. So when I talked before about some things that, uh, you know, saddened me on the day of my diagnosis, you know, de definitely being able to kind of take her to a prom was one of those yeah i remember it vividly and proud dad moment taking her that day as uh, as she went and, and finished school so that so that was great in terms of the future um so keep i want to keep um obviously helping the I mean, dea association as much as i can I want to keep uh raising support awareness um doing a little bit of a little bit of work helping to uh increase the diversity of applicants into policing which is uh, which is fantastic and a great opportunity to kind of keep contributing from that end but you know i'm really you know personally really excited by you know this kind of proposition around united to end mnd and the work that that's uh, you know, uh i say early days it's not easy because some people have been working on this for a number of months but you know i, I in terms of propositions for the future, I think it's the best thing I've ever seen. The best thing I've read, you know, the kind of collaboration across, whether that's, you know, the academic and research institutions, into government and into key uh, agencies like the Association and the My Name is great. So, you know, I want to dedicate some of my time to helping to do what I can to to um, raise awareness of that campaign and what's uh, what I think will be if we can get if we can get it landed you know really transformative in terms of research but in terms of hope and don't we all need a good dose of hope and I think it's there on the, on the horizon so really excited by that. And I think that's kind of where we're at, really, with the with the last question. But thank you for for being so open, sharing every everything that you have, and it's been really interesting hearing, you, well, really particularly about your you know your career and everything as well. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, really enjoyed today, and thank you for the invite and listening to my uh, my stories. It's a privilege to get up for work every day and and want to be there and to love it and to feel like you making a difference I'm so glad that you had the support in place from your employers that you were able to because as Becky said it's it's not 
always going to be the case for people, but it should be, you know, it should be there. So thank you for helping us to raise awareness in, in that respect and hopefully help other people. You've been listening to MND Matters, a podcast from the MND Association. Find more information at mndassociation.org. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, contact our helpline MND Connect on 0808 802 or email mndconnect at mndassociation.org.